the, almost the last words of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, the 22nd chapter of the book of the Revelation, almost the final verses of the Bible, Jesus is communicating to John, his apostle, what he wants to say. And so John is quoting Jesus. And this is what Jesus says through John to the world and to us. I, Jesus, have sent my messenger to testify to you these things for the churches, for us. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star, and the spirit and the bride say come, the Holy Spirit and the church, the spirit and the bride of Christ, the church, together extend the invitation. The spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, let him come. Almost the final words of the New Testament and the final statement of Jesus is an invitation to the thirsty, to the lonely, to the needy, to whosoever will, let him come. It's free. It's free. That's his invitation. Let's pray that the world will accept it as we join hands and hearts together in a moment of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this unconditional invitation. We thank you, Father, that from the beginning of the Bible till the end, from the beginning of time until the end, your invitation is to whosoever will. We thank you that the invitation is not exclusive, that it's not esoteric and reserved for a special few, but that it is unconditional and for each of us and all of us and whosoever will. We pray, dear Lord, that those of us who have heard that invitation and responded to it in days, weeks, months, even years past, that maybe in this service this morning we will have a fresh touch, a fresh thirst for a deeper drink of the free water of life so that our own souls will be refreshed and our own spirits renewed and our own commitment deepened. We pray, Father, for those in this service who are thirsty for hope, forgiveness, meaning, family, whatever the need. We thank you for satisfying that thirst and supplying the free water of life to satisfy the deepest needs of our soul. For this we pray in the name of him who is the water of life himself, your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. This past Tuesday morning, I stood on the top of the Mount of Olives just outside the city of Jerusalem with about 50 people and thought about what Jesus said there 2,000 years ago and how appropriate it is for us today, as appropriate as it was 2,000 years ago. His last words 
spoken on earth during his earthly ministry. Final statement Jesus made. Final words of any person are important. The final words of Jesus to his church, his followers, consequently to us. These words are vitally important. Let me read you what the scripture says from the first chapter of the book of Acts, beginning with verse 3. To those he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. You're not to know that. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost part of the earth. In an oft-quoted statement by Andre Marlowe that bears repeating, we hear him say, the 21st century will be spiritual or it will not be. The 21st century will be spiritual or it will not be. If the 21st century is not spiritual, if something doesn't begin to happen in the waning days of this century, then we may be on the verge of another dark ages and a period of chaos greater than the chaos we see now in a world more disastrous than the world in which we are living today. We're on the spot. Jesus has put the ball in our court. It's up to us. To those of us in this room, and to those who are in other rooms like this, large and small, throughout the world, to whom these words from Jesus were addressed. You 
or to receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even unto the uttermost part of the earth. I think it's very appropriate in these initial hours of the first few days of this new year, we look at what we need to be doing in the next 208 weeks. Do you realize that's all we have between now and the end of this century? Well, really, since we've already spent one week, 207 weeks. 207 Sundays to preach the gospel in this place. 207 Sundays to teach a Sunday school class. 207 weeks for ministries, for witnessing, for serving, for praying, for sharing. 207 weeks for youth camp and choirs, mission groups. 207 weeks. And I'm convinced that the place to begin to do something about the 21st century is today, and the people to begin with are us. The Bible says judgment begins at the house of God. By that he means that God expects his people to be responsible to him and for him and if we fail, we will be held accountable by God. Now, I plan to live for 207 more weeks. I plan to live far beyond that into the next century, God willing. I don't know that I'll be your pastor that long, but that's up to God and to you also. But I, I plan to be here. I say again, as the Lord's willing. Now, I realize I'm in the fourth quarter. I don't think I'm yet in the two-minute warning. <laughs> but if I am, that's all right also. But I want to say a word to those of you who are my contemporaries in age, those of you who are like I, uh, 50 years of age, or <laughs> uh, older, uh, a good bit older. No, I do. I want to talk to those of you who are over 50 years of age. I want to talk to you who have children and grandchildren and maybe great-grandchildren and within the next few years of the first of the next century, not only the next century, but the next millennium, you may have some great-great-grandchildren. I believe with all of my heart that you and I today, in what we do and the kind of commitment we have and the kind of giving that we have and the kind of praying that we do, we are responsible for what will happen to them in the 21st century. If you and I drop the torch, they'll walk in darkness. If you and I fumble the ball, they'll be doomed to defeat. For the problem in America is not young people, not children. The primary problem in America is not drugs, not crime, not premarital sex, not illicit activities, not Bosnia that the, or the budget. The primary problem in America today is parental irresponsibility. We are responsible. 
parents and grandparents. We're responsible. And to just lament the situation, to criticize the times, does absolutely no good. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to be? And what are we going to do? I want to say a word to you younger couples. And to those who may not be here, I hope you'll pass it on to them. If you have a child 10 years old, 207 weeks, that little boy, that little girl will go through some dramatic changes physically, mentally, emotionally. 207 weeks, and you've got a 14-year-old. As the twig is bent, you be indifferent about Sunday school and worship. You be indifferent about having your child in Bible study. Indifferent about having your child in worship. Indifferent about having your child and yourself and your family involved in spiritual things. You are entertaining tragedy in your home and in your life. That's not a threat. That's just a statement of fact. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 5.8 that the person who does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. And Paul is writing to Timothy and he's not talking exclusively about material provisions. That's the least of the issue. Those who do not provide for their own, their own family, their own children are worse than infidels according to the Word of God. You may give them nice clothes and food and cars and home and all of that, but if you do not prepare them spiritually for the 21st century, God will hold you accountable. The children of the finest Christians can go astray, but I guarantee you the percentages are with those who have done their best in home to make their home Christian by doing more than just saying grace before the meals. By having your child develop the habit of being in church on Sunday, in Bible study and in worship, not in one or the other for the sake of convenience. Because I, I can tell you from experience what will happen in five years, ten years. You'll go to some pastor, it may be me or someone else, you'll come and say, Pastor, I don't know what happened. I don't know why my daughter got involved in drugs. I don't know why my son got a girl pregnant. I don't, I don't know how they got in the wrong crowd. I can tell you why. In large measure, it's because you ignored the spiritual nurture that is supposed to come from you to your children. The church cannot substitute for what you do. We can supplement, we can encourage, but we cannot take your place. You, fathers and mothers, are responsible for the spiritual nourishment of your children. And if the 21st century is going to be different for them, it's because you and I will be different for them right here, right now, for the next 207 weeks. The 21st century will be spiritual or it will not be. And it will not be if you ignore the spiritual in your home and in your influence upon your children. 
Well, what does Jesus tell us to do? Well, first he tells us what not to do. He says, stop worrying about the second coming. Stop worrying about when I'm coming back. I can promise you that with the coming of the end of a century and the end of a millennium, it's already happening. I can see it in the bookstores. A veritable plethora of books are going to come out about the second coming, about the end times. Maybe. We've been in the last days since Jesus rose from the dead. That's right. Theologically, we've been in the last days. What that means is God doesn't have anything else to do but what he's already done, and that is send his son Jesus Christ. Since then, nothing else is to be done. We're in the last days. We may be in the last of the last days. I don't know. We may be. But one thing is for certain. We don't know the day nor the hour. In fact, Jesus said that he didn't even know it. Only the Father knew it. And somebody can write a book and tell you that they know it. Don't spend your time reading books about when the Lord is coming back. Jesus said, don't you worry about the time when I come back. What you get concerned about is helping the world know I got here the first time to save them from their sins and to give them life eternal. There are millions of people that haven't accepted that. And the primary emphasis and thrust of preaching and teaching in the ministries of the church should be he has come for Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the primary message. He is coming back, but if he isn't back in a million years, I can promise you we'll be going somewhere before he gets back. And where we will be going will be dependent upon what we've done with the first coming of Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, don't worry about that, but wait. Didn't say stop, he just said wait until you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? You say, Bugner, what do I have to do to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, let Jesus answer you. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give His Spirit to those who ask Him? Have you ever asked Him to fill you with His Spirit? He will, and I promise you that it is only Spirit-filled people whom God will use to change this day, the next day, the next 207 weeks, and the next millennium and the next century. For it is not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Power belongeth unto God. No flesh can glory in the presence of the Lord. So whatever power the church has comes through the spiritual power of the indwelling Spirit. Now, a church can have the truth but not have the Spirit. And Jesus said, They that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. For it is the Spirit of God and the Word of God which is a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of joint and marrow and soul and spirit. And yet the Word of God is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to be filled with the Spirit of love. That's the first quality that Paul tells us, the qualities of the Holy Spirit. What it means to be filled with the Spirit of Christ? Does it mean you go crazy, do some stupid thing? Well, if loving the world is stupid and crazy, that's it. For the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering 
and gentleness and patience and humility and self-control. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's loving people. People who love others that will change the world. It's joyful people that can sing in their lives as well as this choir sang with their voices a few moments ago. That's what will change the world. The world's not going to be changed by threats, by fear, by anger, by force. It's going to be changed by love. The love of God in Jesus Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when He fills your heart, when He comes into your life, begins to fill your heart and overflow, He does two things. He makes you very peaceful and comfortable, and He also makes you uncomfortable. He stirs you up. In fact, they said that of Jesus during His ministry. He stirreth up the people. That's good. We need to be stirred up. It was said of the early Christians, these folks who've turned the world upside down have come here also. Have they turned the world upside down? They turned it upside down by saying God is love. God has come to forgive. God has come to save. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. God has become incarnate in a human body. And he began to change people's lives. So he will make you comfortable and he'll also make you uncomfortable at times. He will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, as someone well said. Uh, I can remember very well back in Baylor days when on Friday night we would have what we call missions. We'd all gather, a lot of us in the BSU and other Christians in, uh, on the campus at Baylor. In those days we'd get in the union building on Friday night, we'd meet over there and we'd sit around on the floor and sing choruses and um, and then we'd go out to various missions around town, working with these small missions, kind of vacation Bible school, Bible study things, Bible stories, and that sort of thing. And then we'd come back to the union building and sit around on the floor and sing some more and give some reports of uh, what had happened in the missions. Great time, mission night uh, on the Baylor campus. I don't know whether that's still happening or not. But anyway, it was a great experience in my life during those days. And I can remember, he's here today, and I don't say this to embarrass him, but I talked about it in the early service. I'll never forget when Howard Butt came back from one of the Friday night mission services, and he had been down, I believe, at the Ninth Street Mission, where our friend Jack Robinson uh, was a pastor. And uh, they were having Bible memory time, where if you got the verse of Scripture memorized and could quote it, you got a star by your name. That's a big deal, isn't it? Uh, and so the verse of Scripture was John 14, 18. When Jesus says, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. That's a good verse, isn't it? I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Well, old little kid, one right after the other, stand up, come up there to the head of the line, had a line here. They'd come up to the head of the line, and they'd call, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Person over there, get that star and put it up there beside his name. Next little kid would come, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Here came this little kid, I will not leave you comfortable, I will come to you. <laughs> Wrong, go back to the end of the line and listen, pay attention.
Start over. Went back and he worked his way back up there again, looking around, not paying attention. I will not leave you comfortable. I will come to you. Get it right. He had it right. He had it right. For both are true. He will not leave us comfortless. He'll come to us in those distressing moments. He'll come to us in those dark times. He'll come to us in hurt and pain. He'll come to us and will not leave us comfortless. But I'll tell you something, he will not leave us comfortable. He will not leave us comfortable. He will come to stir up his people and nothing more is needed in the last few weeks of the 20th century and the second millennium than for God's people to be stirred up about their responsibility to make a difference now and tomorrow and for future generations. I thought of this when we were in a Hyatt Hotel in Jerusalem because in the morning uh, we'd get up at 6.30 and we'd be, have breakfast and then we would leave. But we'd always put the, Martha and I would put the do not disturb sign outside so they wouldn't wake us up any earlier uh, than 6 or 6.30. And then we'd get up and we'd kind of think about what we are going to do during the day and we'd get dressed and everything. And then we'd take the sign off of that door and, and turn it over where it said, uh, please make up the room. Well, we were going to be gone all day. I, we assumed they would, but we didn't want them to forget to make up the room. So uh, this past yesterday, I went to a bunch of different hotels up and down the, up and down the uh, Loop 410. And I got some of these door knockers, these door hangers here. Holiday Inn, please do not disturb. Now you turn some of these over, and on the other side it says, please make up the room early. Here's one from, uh, there's one from La Quinta, from Ramada, privacy, please. Uh, here is one from the Sheridan, privacy, please. May please make up the room early. Here is one from the Embassy Suites. This one really got my attention. Privacy, please. They have it in French, in German, in Spanish, in Italian, and in Japanese. That shows what an international city we live in right there. There it is. So the reason I brought a number of these is because I want to figuratively hand every one of you in this room one of these and ask you a question. Which side of this do you have hanging out for God? Just leave me alone. I'm comfortable. I'm resting. Don't disturb me. Oh, you need some time like that each day. You certainly do. To wait upon the Lord, just like Jesus told those disciples. You don't just get up and go run out and do it on your own. You need to have His Spirit in you. You need to be filled with His Spirit. But there comes a time when you turn that sign over and you walk out of that room and you read the rest of that second chap first chapter of the book of Acts and there are four things that Jesus said to do after you wait upon the Lord. The next thing is walk, work, witness, worship. All of them active. And I'll be with you, he said. Now here's the main issue. The main issue of this whole message is right here. Jesus is saying, I am not here primarily 
to do something to change the world. Now hear me out. I'm not here primarily to change the world by my word, by what I say. I am here by my word and by my spirit to change you and then you and I together will change the world. But I'll not do it alone. You and I are co-laborers with God. And if we don't get out of the room and walk and work and witness and worship, God will not do it. We keep expecting God to move the world around like we're a bunch of chess people on a board. That is not the way he works. Read the Bible. He changes people, and through changed people, changes the world. Through his Spirit dwelling in your mortal body, he will bring about change in you, with you, and through you to the whole world. What do you have hanging on your door? You tell him to leave you alone, he will. He'll knock, but he won't knock it down. He'll call, but he'll not kick it in. You've got to say, Lord, I've waited, now I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk back into Sunday school. I'm going to walk back into Christian activity. I'm going to walk into witness, into work. I'm going to work. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day for the night cometh when no man can work. Did you hear him? He didn't say, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day for the night cometh when none of us can work. We're going to do it. We're co-laborers with God. We're ministers of reconciliation. We're members of his body. Turn that do not disturb sign over after you filled your spirit with God's spirit. You're never going to be perfect. You wait around in that room till you're perfect. You'll die. And you'll never get out the door. You walk out and while you're gone, you know what Jesus will do? He'll come in and he'll clean up the room while you're gone. He'll put some fresh linens there and some fresh towels and some more soap so when you come back after walking and working and witnessing and worshiping, you can come in there and refresh yourself and get cleaned up, get some nice rest. Renew your commitment to him. Get up the next day, turn the sign over, and get out of there. He will comfort you when you need comforting. And he will make life uncomfortable for you until you and I do as individuals and as a church what God wants us to do. Paul talks in Romans about Jesus being at home in your heart. Let me read it to you. Eighth chapter of the book of Romans Ninth verse. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. This is Philip's translation. If God finds a home in you. They didn't have any room for him in Bethlehem. Do you have room for him? However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If God finds a home in you. Is God at home in your heart? He wants to be. When Lisa was about six or seven years old, she was with us in Israel. And 
we flew into Tel Aviv, got in there at night, went to the hotel in Jerusalem, and Lisa had a little pillow that she carried with her everywhere. Uh, we called it the night-night. It was Lisa's night-night. Your child may have had a blanket or a stuffed animal or whatever. Lisa had this little pillow called a night-night. We wouldn't go anywhere without that night-night. We would leave Mike or Steve before we would leave that night-night. <laughs> it was that crucial to her and therefore to us. Well, we got the room, and the night-night was missing. It was in Lisa's flight bag, and her flight bag was missing, and it had been on the bus, we thought, with her and with us, and in the hustle of activity, everybody trying to get the room to get some rest before the next day, we couldn't find the night-night. Martha said, Buckner, we've got a disaster. <laughs> I said, I'll go look. Well, I went down to the lobby. It was not there. I thought maybe it had been left down there in a the little flight bag. I found out where the buses were stored. I went over there, persuaded a guy to let me in to go look on the bus that had brought us from Tel Aviv to search around in there to see. That's how desperate we were to find the night night. And uh, no luck. But Martha had gotten with Lisa and said, Now, Lisa, that night night's important to you, and, and let's ask Jesus to help us find it. So Martha prayed, Lord, this is important to Lisa, and we pray you will help us find her night-night. Well, I came back. I didn't answer the prayer because I didn't have the night-night. A few minutes later, a knock at the door, and someone said, you know, I got to picking up stuff down in the lobby, and I picked up an extra flight bag, and I believe this is Lisa's. It was Lisa's. And then there was the night-night. Oh, glorious day. <laughs> And Martha very appropriately and sensitively said, uh, Lisa, you know, we asked Jesus to help us find it, and he did, and we ought to thank him. Because a lot of times we ask the Lord to do things for us, and he does them, and we never even give him as much as the time of day to say thank you. So she said, let's thank him. So we prayed. Thank you for helping us find the night night. After Martha had finished praying, Lisa said, matter-of-factly, well, I knew that Jesus knew where it was. After all, this is his hometown. <laughs> Are you Jesus' hometown? You can be. If you let him be at home in your heart, he'll be there. Turn the sign over. Start walking. Maybe start walking right here this morning to trust the Lord as your Savior or to become a part of His church to help us change the next 207 weeks that could, under God, change a whole century, a whole millennium. It has happened before. It can happen again. If, if, Turn it over, invite him in, let him be at home in your heart. I'll be right here to greet you and welcome you. Sunday school teacher came in the early service to say I was getting discouraged and kind of burned out. But said, you know, today's made a difference in my life. I'm going back to teaching like I've never taught before. 
I've got 207 Sundays. We've got to make a difference before the end of the century because the 21st century will be spiritual or it will not be. And whether it's spiritual or not is up to us.